Four attacks in 19 months, all in the same area. They were all extremely violent, but none of them sexually motivated. It was from one place where young women who were walking were getting hit on the back of the head randomly, it seemed. And that was southwest London around Twickenham. This is a complete mystery. We're completely open-minded. We don't know what the motive is. He becomes a soldier. He has a harem of women all over West London. There is no doubt that if this guy had not been taken out when he was taken out by my team, he would have gone on to victimise, assault and maybe kill untold numbers of women. From the Daily Mail newsroom, I'm Stephen Wright and this is the Mail Plus true crime podumentary, Levi Belfield, the bus stop killer. My name's Stephen Wright and I've been covering major crime cases for the Daily Mail for some 25 years. It's a job which has taken me around the world and given me a vantage point on some of the most appalling acts of violence imaginable. I often get asked about the motive in the cases I've covered. Frequently there is none. What rational reason could Dr Harold Shipman have had for murdering hundreds of his patients? I covered his case at length and there was no doubt in my mind that he enjoyed the act of killing. And in that category too is Levi Belfield, a serial murderer who terrified south-west London in the early 2000s. He was a man who had a pathological hatred of blonde young women and subjected them to the most ferocious attacks. The former nightclub bouncer and Will Clamper was eventually convicted of three murders and a further attempted murder. But did he escape justice over other crimes and could his killing spree have been halted earlier by police? In this two-part podumentary series for Mail Plus, I have returned to the Belfield case in the hope of answering these important questions, as well as finding out how he was nailed by Scotland Yard and then belatedly by Surrey Police. My re-examination of the Belfield case starts in August 2004, when I reported on the murder of 22-year-old French student Amélie Delagrange on Twickenham Green in south-west London. Roped off and deserted, but for a number of police officers searching the area, the gentle surrounds of Twickenham Green now host to a horrific murder. In the early 2000s, Colin Sutton was an experienced detective chief inspector who had recently returned to the Met Police after a period working outside the capital. He was woken the morning after Amelie's murder by a call on his landline at home. It was about seven o'clock in the morning and I got this call out of the blue saying um, there's been a murder in Twickenham and uh, you need to get yourself over there because your team's going to take it. Do you, do you remember what details you were given at the time? The details were pretty sketchy at the time. Um, it was just that there was a young French girl who'd been walking across Twickenham Green and she'd been hit on the head uh, and, and died. Immediately, I did, though, think about the sort of similar case of, of Marshall McDonald 18 months previously, because everybody in the command knew about that, although I didn't investigate it. You know, we, we knew that case had, had happened, and it had happened relatively closely geographically to, to where Emily was attacked. A teenage boy had previously been arrested for killing 19-year-old student Marsha, but had never faced trial. Instead, he was detained under the Mental Health Act, the attack took place on the pavement just over beside that white van. For Marsha, of course, this wasn't just any quiet suburban street. Had she been allowed to continue her journey along this pavement for just another hundred yards, she would have been home. 
With no new leads and a seemingly strong suspect off the streets, the case had been closed the year before. To all intents and purposes, it had been solved. But Colin Sutton, the Senior Investigating Officer, or SIO, in the Amelie murder investigation, sensed there was more to it. It kind of stood out to him because, you know, offences like that are pretty rare. You don't, you don't get young women sort of battered on the head for no reason and killed in, in south-west London, in, in one of the sort of safer areas of London anyway. And so, you know, this meant there was probably the second one in, in 18 months. So it was something that, that sort of struck me uh, in my first thoughts when thinking about what, what might lay ahead. Colin headed down to the crime scene to receive a handover from the officers on the scene. Literally, really, the, the only thing we knew is that we had a, we had a dead French girl on Twickenham Green. Um, there was one witness, the guy that that, uh, that raised the alarm in in the first place, um, who'd been just taking a walk around the Green because he'd been doing some revision for exams or something. But all he could tell us was that I was walking around the Green and I saw this dead body on the cricket field. There were immediate things that we could do in terms of trying to identify who she was, and that was was achieved pretty quickly because she she had some a piece of paper with a a phone number on, which was actually Olivia, who was her boyfriend, and and so he was called, and he said, "Yeah, that, that sounds like Emily," and and from there we we kind of got her her identity and where she lived and where she worked, and we were able to kind of pursue that line of finding out exactly who she was. And, of course, the other crucial thing that had been done overnight by the night duty team was to get a trace, a location trace, on her mobile phone. It's her phone and her purse and, and a Walkman that we knew she had and her keys for her house were all missing. And the night duty had contacted the telephone intelligence unit at Scotland Yard and they'd gone on to the service provider. We were told from that that her phone had so it disappeared from the network in the vicinity of Walton-on-Thames at about 23 minutes past 10. Well, she was found by the witness at about quarter past or just before. So that really gave us our first kind of start in that uh, we knew it wouldn't be possible to take her phone from Twickenham Green to Walton-on-Thames in that timescale unless you're in a vehicle. So pretty early on, we knew we'd be looking for a suspect in a vehicle. You know, that was discounting the the horrible coincidence that somebody had killed her and then somebody else had robbed her phone from her while she was lying there dying. You had to sort of discount that that was going to happen to Twicket of Greed and be happy that whoever took her phone was probably the person who killed her. That was really the only lead that we had at that early stage of the evening, was the telephone intelligence. Colin quickly began assembling his team for the case, reporting to experienced Met Murder Squad chief Andy Murphy. It was appreciated very, very quickly that this was going to be a very high profile and a very difficult and probably a very long investigation. And I was given help from all over the Met, really, you know, all sorts of other squads, the Ford Squad, the Flying Squad, the Extradition Squad. I had something like 70-odd officers uh, working on it for the first three or four weeks. There really was a, an imperative to solve it as soon as possible. You, you know, you, we see it, don't we, in, in fiction and in, in drama all the time, that you know, the sort of pressure to catch him before he strikes again. Well, we were living that for real. That was the reality of this uh, situation. We, we, we really felt that this, the only way we could stop him would be by arresting him. Nobody was in any doubt of the seriousness of what we were taking on and the seriousness of this investigation and what it meant for that part of London. Colin and his officers faced a race against time to not only catch Amelie's killer, but also to inform her parents in France of her murder in a normally safe London suburb. 
News travels fast after high-profile murders, and the Met had to find a way of getting to her family quickly. It posed a real logistical challenge. We found out Amelie's home address in France through her employer. that She worked for a patisserie down in Richmond uh, near the station. We got in touch with the French police and, and, and asked them if they would go around for us, and they kind of didn't really want to and said they'd do it by telephone or they'd give us their phone number and we could do it, which I wasn't particularly happy with. And there was a little bit of toing and froing, which uh, it was resolved when I, I said, to, OK, if they weren't going to do it, what we would do is contact the British embassy in Paris and get them to send someone around to do it. And I think that probably concentrated the mind of the local police. But having said that, I subsequently found out when I spoke to Emily's parents that the way in which it was done was very different to how we treat victims and families in the UK. They live in a very small village in Picardy, and uh, he came home from work, found this car, this unusual car there. There were two people in it. They got out, and they, they just sort of said, are you Monsieur Delagrange? And he said, yes. And they said, we've got some sad news for you. Your daughter's been murdered in, in England. Uh, can you phone this number? And gave him a number. And they didn't even go in the house. There had been a number of attacks on young, often blonde women in the Hounslow area of West London in the years preceding the murder of Amélie de Lagrange. Four attacks in 19 months, all in the same area. They were all extremely violent, but none of them sexually motivated. So the police will be building a psychological profile on those details. There mm. were a whole series of, of attacks, a couple in November 2002, both blonde girls at bus stops. Geoffrey Wonsall is an author who, like Colin Sutton, has written a book on the man eventually found guilty of these killings. February 2003, there's the first acknowledged killing of a girl called Marsha McDonnell. In December 2003, another girl is attacked again at a bus stop. And in May 2004, an attempted murder of Kate Sheedy and then in August 2004, the murder of Amélie de Lagrange on Twickenham Green. If you don't know London that well, these areas are all relatively close together. But up to this point, no one had linked the attacks. This is a complete mystery. We're completely open-minded. We don't know what the motive is. If we could find the motive, it would take us... Gradually, a pattern it. began to emerge. But that pattern really only started to be properly brought to fruition after Colin Sutton was appointed the SIO of Emily de Lagrange. Until that point, it was as if it could be anybody. It, what, these were utterly random attacks and killings. There was no obvious motive. It was simply out of the blue. You're standing at a bus stop, a man pulls up, you, you get off a bus, you're walking back home, a man comes, jumps out of a car, hits you over the head with a hammer, several times, killing you, and runs off. There's, there's mm. no sexual attack. Just an absolutely random killing, which was what made it so difficult to pin down. Colin and his team had also begun to draw parallels between the Delagrange case and the other unsolved attacks on their patch. There had also been more intriguing links between Amelie's case and the town of Walton-on-Thames several miles away. These sorts of blitz attacks are thankfully very rare and so to, to have had two within a few miles of each other that was so similar sounded alarm bells and, and it was on that first day that I then found out that there were other attacks that had taken place in the area that hadn't been fatal and of course in the strange way that things were investigated because the 
if you if you if you're attacked and you survive, normally your case is investigated by the the local borough detectives. If somebody's attacked and dies, then it's investigated by the murder squad. And what that does mean is there's kind of a blind side to the murder squad in in that we don't always know of the kind of near misses that have gone on in the area. And as they started to come out, and we started to find them. I mean, you know, I had a an excellent liaison with the local borough, and, and in fact, Clive Grace was was a local detective who came onto my squad that day to help us, and never left until he retired. You know, he he joined the team and was a really really valuable member of it. But he brought with him all this knowledge about the other attacks that had gone on in the area, and there were there were three or four of them, and, and it was really clear at that point that there was something going on. You know, there was this cluster of offences in southwest London and nowhere else, and nowhere else nationally, not just in London. There was one one place where young women who were walking were getting hit on the back of the head randomly, it seemed, and that was southwest London around Twickenham. So with the knowledge that the killer may have struck before, and the fear that they might strike again at any moment, the murder squad began scouring the CCTV covering the area around Twickenham Green in the hope of catching their man. It was always part of the sort of first list of actions to do is to get, get somebody onto CCTV. What was different in this case was because we had the site of the murder and the last place that, that Amelie's phone was seen down at Walton and that knowledge that there must have been a vehicle to take the phone from Twickenham to Walton, the CCTV area immediately was much wider than just the immediate vicinity of, of the crime. And by looking at the map, you could sort of say, well, there are only a limited number of ways which somebody could drive from Twickenham to Walton. And that really formed the basis for my CCTV parameters. And that meant that they were much wider than you would normally have. And accordingly, it meant that it needed more staff to deal with it. So where you'd normally have something like one or possibly two DCs looking at CCTV, I had seven. And the thing that also helped us enormously with this was that the local bus garage at Fullwell had very recently equipped its buses with CCTV, and they all had something like six or eight cameras. And some of those cameras looked outside as well, either through windows or literally from the bodywork of the bus outside externally. So we were able to go and retrieve all, all this bus CCTV and what that did because Twickenham Green has got bus routes running across both sides of it we had this kind of regular update we, we could look at the situation at the green at a certain point in time and then five minutes later or three minutes later when the next bus came along it was really useful enabling us to to build up a picture of the movement and what had gone on at the green at the time ultimately that was what kind of led us to take the investigation on it was the CCTV footage on the buses passing by Twickenham Green that were to give Senior Investigating Officer Colin Sutton and his team their first significant clue as to the identity of the murderer. Just over by the cricket pavilion, so probably, I don't know, 70 yards away from where Amelie was found, there was this white van that wasn't there at 10 o'clock. It was there at three minutes past 10, and it left again by about 13 minutes past 10. So we had this vehicle that was really, really close and, and really in a part of the green that was mostly residential and there's no obvious reason for, for somebody to stop there for a few minutes and then drive away again. When we looked further at, at the CCTV from a wider area, we traced this van going at some speed in the direction that you would take to go to Walton on Thames. 
but also going back before the offence to see that this van had been cruising around the area near Twickenham Green, all within the radius of a mile, for 45 minutes before Amberley was, was murdered. And, of course, the other vital part of the CCTV was plotting Amberley. The CCTV on the bus showed us that she'd missed her stop, effectively. It then showed her having a conversation with the bus driver, and we went back to him, and he told us, yeah, she, she asked me what time the next bus back up was, and I told her 10 minutes, and she said, oh, I'll walk. And then we could track her walk back up Hampton Road towards Twickenham Green, up to when she's sort of less than 100 yards away from the green itself. And by overlaying those sightings of her with the sightings of the van, it was possible to prove that the van must have overtaken her on her way as she was walking up Hampton Road, which was important. But even more so was the fact that she maintained a relatively sort of steady pace. It was quite a slow pace, but it was a steady pace in her walk all the way up until the point where we know she would have been overtaken by the van. And then the next camera that she appears upon, she's been delayed. So she's either slowed down to, to a virtual stop, which is possibly unlikely, or she's been stopped in that blind spot for some time. So we think that's where almost certainly she was approached by the driver of the van who had a conversation with her, and that's what led up to the attack. So you had this white van. How certain were you that find this white van and you find the killer? I thought there was a pretty good chance of that, but I thought that we had to find it in any case because even if we were to find the killer by some other means, when we disclosed to the defence that this van was there, that was always going to be a, an avenue that they could exploit. So we needed to trace whoever was driving that van. And of course he or she might have been a witness. They might have seen something. So to me, it was a bit of a no-brainer. I thought, yeah, we had to find the van, and I kind of put all the eggs in the van basket. That was perhaps the second big call, and, and one that people above and below me questioned. And again, I sort of stuck to my guns. I thought, well, this is how we're going to solve it. This, this is the best chance we've got. I was being advised to go, I'll go and round up all the local sex offenders. It will be one of those. We actually had something tangible here. We had this van that was there on the plot, right on the scene, right at the time that it happened. To me, it was obvious that was going to be our best way of, of taking it forward. We want to recover a white Ford Courier vehicle. We believe that vehicle was used by the suspect uh, on the 19th of The August. van the murder team had identified was a white Ford Courier, a small van popular with tradesmen. But the CCTV footage hadn't captured the registration plate. The car's manufacturers told the police that there were 25,000 vans of that model registered in the UK. It was like looking for a needle in a haystack, so senior detective Colin Sutton came up with an unusual solution. Initially, the detectives contacted the registered owners of all the vans in the area surrounding the crime scene. What we were finding was that when we went to the registered keepers in many cases, because it was a commercial vehicle and they, they were often owned by companies, they would say, well, yes, this is our office here in Twickenham or Kingston, but that van is used by somebody in Newcastle or Bournemouth. So when you sat and thought about that, you think, well, the, the reverse must apply. There must be companies in Birmingham and Bournemouth and Newcastle 
who have got vans registered there that are being used in Twickenham. So what we needed to do was to find the vans that were in use in the area rather than those that were registered in the area. And that's where we ended up with the spectacle of, of the Met's elite finest detectives from the homicides team standing on a footbridge over the A316 taking car numbers for 12 hours a day. There was almost sort of no coming back from that. It was, we, we'd certainly gone all in on the van and I'd gone all in on the van. And, and we, to be honest, we still weren't really getting anywhere. And eventually we thought, well, if, we, you know, if, we, if we're going to go the whole hog, then we need to go the whole hog. And so kind of devised a plan to send pairs of officers all over the country to, to try and find all these 25,000 vans. And, and uh, you know, it was going to be a huge, long and expensive undertaking. With the majority of his officers spread across the country hunting for the white van, Colin and his remaining skeleton team were left wondering what to do. We had this file of, of single suggestions, which were, were where people, mostly women, had phoned in and said, I think you need to look at my ex-partner or partner or husband or boyfriend or whatever. Um, I think this is the sort of thing he might have done. And we had over 120, I think it's 128, 129 of those. So one suggestion was, should we have a look at those while we're sort of sitting here doing nothing? And when that suggestion was made, somebody else in in the room said, when we'd had the mobile police station on Twickenham Green in the immediate aftermath of Amelie's murder, that a woman had come in and reported her ex-partner as being violent and hating blonde women and, and capable of doing such a crime. And he does wheel clamping and he has little white van. No make or model, but just little white van. Those two sort of pieces of information being put together, we said, OK, let's have a look at that one then. And that one was... Johanna Collings, who'd been into the police station, who had reported Levi Belfield as, as a potential suspect. So we had 129 to choose from, and because this officer had, had sort of made this casual inquiry, we, we started off with, with the man that it was, which is pretty remarkable, I suppose. Collins' team ran background checks on their new prime suspect, and not only confirmed he was the owner of a white Ford Courier van, also that he owned a silver Vauxhall Corsa, the same one CCTV had picked up near the murder of Marsha McDonnell. And to their disbelief, they found he'd also owned a people carrier that matched the description of one used in an unsolved hit and run a few months earlier, that on schoolgirl Kate Sheedy. By this time, we were aware of the offence where Kate Sheedy was the victim. There was kind of potential for that being part of our series, although I wasn't absolutely certain at the time because of the difference in the in the method. But in the intelligence report that we looked at for Levi Belfield, it said that in, in May 2004, just a couple of weeks before Kate Sheedy was run over, he'd been arrested while driving a white Toyota Previa. And of course, we knew that that was a large white people carrier. What we then had was this man who was being sold to us as a a misogynist who was violent and treated women poorly and was capable of, of extreme violence, not only had a little white van that he used for wheel clamping, which matched the van we knew was 70 yards away from Emily Delagrange when she was murdered, but also at the relevant time he had a vehicle of the type that was used mm. to run over Kate Sheedy. So all of a sudden this is starting to look a lot more interesting, isn't it? 
After just three months on the case, Colin Sutton and his team had identified the man they suspected was the killer of both Amélie Delagrange and Marsha McDonnell, as well as the person responsible for the attack on Kate Sheedy. Colin called his detectives back from across the country and set them to round-the-clock surveillance. I was very mindful of the fact that this was a really dangerous guy that, that could kill somebody else at the drop of a hat. The chances of a surveillance team being able to intervene in one of these blitz attacks were not 100%. We saw it much more recently, didn't we, in Streatham. You know, you've got a guy under surveillance with a surveillance team around him and, and yet still he's able to, to attack people. Belfield was obviously a dangerous man and he had an unconventional lifestyle. Author Geoffrey Wonsall traced his day-to-day life in his biography. He becomes a sultan. He has a harem of women all over West London. Some he lives with part of the time. He parks one in one flat. He goes to live with another one in another flat. He then mm. has another one. In another. This is a man who sees himself. He's, by now, he's a huge man. He's six foot one. He's 20 stone. He has a 19 and a half inch neck. Great, bulky. Well, a nightclub bouncer. That's what he was part of the time. The more we found out about Belford, the more we found out about his associates and the people he spent his life with and the people he was involved with, it became quite a big production. He, he lived such a sort of chaotic life that we couldn't always be certain where he was going to be, where he was staying and where he was sort of living. And he was involved with people who were paedophiles and involved with grooming gangs and things like that. We needed really to have quite a big operation to make sure that we didn't miss anything. And that was going to involve hitting a number of addresses simultaneously. And that sort of thing takes time to get resources in place and the briefing in place and all the warrants in place and the legalities as well. So he was under surveillance for a period of about 10 days. The net was closing and the Met decided to move in to arrest Belfield. Due to his chaotic lifestyle, an elaborate plan was formed with police staked out at multiple locations linked to Belfield. It was half past three in the morning on the 22nd of November 2004 and the surveillance team reported Belfield was at his house in West Drayton. Colin Sutton gave the order for the arrest. I get the report back on a phone call from Belfield's house that he wasn't there. That causes great consternation because... The surveillance team have told us that he was there, that he was there at 11 o'clock, they, they saw him go to bed. It's a cul-de-sac and there's no way out by vehicle other than past where they were sitting and just wonder how they could have missed him leaving. We frantically went round to some places where we knew that he'd stayed where we hadn't executed warrants, and mostly hotels in the area to see if he was staying there. He wasn't there. And then that's when I got the phone call from, from DS Norman Griffiths who said, he's in the loft. He heard police banging on the door and he ran up into the loft. Which is a problem because you've got somebody who you want for murdering people by hitting them across the head and he's in a loft and you've got to go up and get him out. And of course the first thing you have to do is take the loft hatch open and expose your head to whoever's up there. So I was kind of thinking about how we could do this safely and, and uh, we were sort of simultaneously on the phone to, to try and get people with shields, possibly even a dog, and, and to, to, to send a dog up into the loft. The phone rang again, and, and it was Norman. He said, don't worry about all that, Governor, I've got him. Belfield being Belfield, you know, he was a lot of bluster, and he was a big man, and he was, 
he was violent to those people that he was much more powerful than, but he wasn't um, a brave man by any means. He was hiding naked under the orange glass fibre insulation that you get in, in lofts between the rafters. And Norman had noticed that it was a bit higher than it should be and he was probably under there, pulled it back and there he was. At 8.30 this morning, police raided several homes in West Drayton. The one behind me, that of 36-year-old Levi Belfield and his common-law wife. The nightclub bouncer is currently being held at a West London police station. Colin Sutton had Levi Belfield in his cells at Heathrow Police Station. But it was a race against time to gather enough evidence to charge him. This is a man who, for most of his life, has talked his way out of trouble. And he's able to talk his way out of trouble and he's quite charming and convincing and has managed to beat the system in terms of police and the courts and all sorts of things many, many times. At first, I think he thought he could talk his way out of this one and he was engaging with us and talking to us, denying everything, but, but in, in the initial stages. He then went with the duty solicitor at Heathrow Police Station for that day and from there on in, the advice always was to him to say no comment. And he did. And he never really spoke to us about anything of any substance. Again, we didn't have enough evidence to charge him with Amelie's murder. And it was looking very much as if we were going to have to release him. The thought within the Metropolitan Police at that point was that if this man is released back onto the streets, he will strike again. Therefore, we must put surveillance on him 24-7 for as long as he's out. Belfield wasn't talking, and an attempt to identify him using a survivor of the previous attack had failed. Colin and his team are running out of time. And then one of his officers came forward with a suggestion. The officers that had been effectively family liaisoning his partner spoke up at the meeting and told us about allegations of rape and buggery and assault, and said that it's not just her, but she says that he's two of his exes will make exactly the same allegations he did it to them. And that kind of became our holding charges. I mean, that's, that's a ridiculous thing to say in some ways because he ended up being charged with nine really serious sexual and assault offences against three former partners, which for any normal person on any normal indictment would be shocking and horrific. He was charged with those. He was kept in custody. He was never tried for those because his lawyers always said there's no point in having a trial on those while we know the likelihood is there'll be a murder trial at some point in the future. He was never tried on those offences. And indeed, when he was convicted of the murders, that indictment with those nine offences on has been left on the file. So it's kind of a measure of the man. There's something of that seriousness and offences of that severity weren't worth proceeding with because of the other things that he'd done. The Met now had time to gather evidence for their case against Levi Belfield. There was no smoking gun forensic proof from Amélie de Lagrange's murder, so they were forced to rely on circumstantial evidence. But luckily they had a star witness. Belfield's partner Emma Mills gave evidence against him. She told the police that on the evening Amélie was murdered, Belfield had picked her up from her weekly shop at Tesco. Emma says crucially to us, he was driving the white van that night. They got home um, around about nine o'clock and ever the gentleman 
what he did was he backed up the drive but never actually got out of the van. She had to open the back doors and take all the three kids in and all the shopping. And then she realised she'd forgotten something. She had some reason she wanted to, to speak to him. So she phoned him on his mobile and it rang once and then went to voicemail. What that call did was gave us the ability to pinpoint where his phone was when he received it. And on his phone record, it shows that his phone at that point was at Twickenham Green. The icing on the cake, if you like, was to prove Emma's story. It was a fantastic piece of work by some of my officers. Emma had paid cash, so there wasn't any bank record of this transaction at Tesco's. So what they did was they went to Tesco's and they said, do you keep your old till receipts? And they said, yes, they're all up in the loft in boxes. And they went through them. There's like 20 odd checkouts at this store. But they went through it and what they'd done is they'd asked Emma how much she'd paid. And she said roughly 70 quid. And they'd really questioned her deeply about what she bought. You know, you must have bought nappies. What brand were they? How big? What size box? What coffee do you buy? What tea do you buy? What washing powder do you buy? And they got her shopping list in great detail and they managed to find a till receipt that matched up exactly. None of this evidence was concrete, but combined with the CCTV footage and the evidence that Belfield had owned vehicles seen at all three attacks, Colin Sutton and his team believed they had a case that proved Levi Belfield's guilt. If you felt that he'd murdered Amelie, then you could use that fact as evidence that he'd murdered Marsha and attempted to murder Kate as well. And that's kind of the, the strength of the case that we, we took to court. I had the pleasure, if you can call it that, of charging him personally. After all this time we'd spent on it, and this guy who, who'd always been completely obnoxious and objectionable to me personally, I stood across the desk from him and looked him in the eye and read the charges that were going to put him in prison forever. There are very few feelings that you can have that, uh, that came close to that. All I saw from him at the time was hate, and at that moment, I loved being hated. You've been listening to a Mail Plus true crime podumentary with me, Stephen Wright. Next time on Levi Belfield, the bus stop killer. Levi Belfield was brought to court today to hear the details of the string of there is an element in Belfield that is godlike, that does believe you can get away with anything. Millie, if you're listening to this, please, please contact someone, please come home. I always remember his reply was, Christ, the, the hairs on my neck are standing up. They have got away with so much, and this is so wrong. I wouldn't say I lost my temper, but there was, there was a bit of a showdown. One of the most notorious killers of recent years in this country, and he enjoys the status.